Today's reading is Ephesians 3:14 through 21. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all of the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and how long, how high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the Church and in Christ Jesus throughout all the generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you're new to Grace, we've begun a conversation around the theme, Transformed into His Image. And we've been exploring the question, um, what does God want to do for us? And that's a, that's a different question than what does God want from us? Uh, because so often it, people look at Christianity, they see God as someone who always wants something from us. But what does God want for us? And I've answered the question this way so far, that God wants to transform us into the likeness of Jesus. God's vision for us is to be like Jesus, to be living a life that's more fully human and more fully alive. So to be like Jesus is not to be super spiritual and thus kind of moving away from being human, but Jesus is called the second Adam. There's a reason for that. He is the prototype of what it looks like to be fully human and fully alive. And that type of lifestyle is described in Galatians 5, 22 to 25, and that has been the key text we've been focusing on here on Sunday mornings. So after asking the uh, what question, I then asked the why question. Why does God want to do this? And the answer that I gave to you was because he loves us. Because he loves us. Our transformation flows out of God's unfathomable love for us. He really does love us. And I suggested to you that this is something that you really need to settle. We need to settle the fact that God really loves us. Because unless we're convinced that God loves us, not just tolerates us from a safe distance or at arm's length, it's only then that we will welcome his involvement in our lives. We trust people because we know they love us. Trust and love go together. We trust God's involvement in our life. We'll welcome his involvement to the degree that we believe that he really loves loves us. So after asking the what and the why question, I then, I then ask the how question. How does God transform us? How does he make us into a people who are marked by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and all those things that are listed in Galatians 5? And Galatians 5 tells us that the transformation that God wants to do involves the work of the Spirit who produces the fruit of the Spirit. Transformation involves the work of the Spirit who then produces the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit who indwells you, if you've given your life over to Jesus, if you've turned your life, if you've turned to Jesus to allow Him to direct your life, then the Spirit who indwells you is more powerful than anything you might see is an obstacle to you living a life that looks like Jesus. 
Whatever obstacle you might be able to, to, you've carried in your life that says to you, no, I can't be like Jesus. The Spirit of God who indwells you is more powerful than any objection, than any obstacle you might see to you living a life that looks like Jesus. And that's what we looked at thus far. And so that's all review. So that brings us to Galatians 5. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Galatians 5, there's one uh, underneath your seat, a blue one. It's page 975 in that. That brings us to Galatians 5 in the first description of the fruit the Spirit produces. And Galatians 5.22 says, the fruit of the Spirit is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. That's the first description that's given to us. Now, I could read hundreds of Bible verses to you on love. Perhaps some of you are sitting out there going like, oh, this is going to be about love. I think I've heard that sermon about 50,000 times. I could read hundreds of Bible verses to you on love, and you could go out of here feeling miserable. Why? Because it's easy to hear through the filter of here's yet one more thing I have to do. Here's one more thing that I have to work at. Here's one more thing that I have to try harder to do. I have to try harder. He's going to tell me how to try to be more loving to people I'm around. The reason why I can say that is because I know that experience. For most of my life as a follower of Jesus, that's the way I lived. I'm not just saying that that was just a couple years. I'm talking about double-digit years. Lots and lots of years. Because the message that I had received or somehow internalized, whether someone intended to give it to me, was the message that to be a Christian meant that you had to try harder. You had to work hard at being good. The message was try hard to be good. It was largely a narrative of Christian perfectionism. And so my experience was one of trying hard to be good, trying hard to obey, failing feeling frustrated, giving up, and then having guilt and shame and realizing that, oh, I need to get back up again. I'd pick myself back up again. I'd set out some kind of new pattern. This was going to be the time where I was not going to fail. I was going to try hard, and I was going to succeed yet once again, or for the first time, maybe. But that pattern was continual. It was a pattern of, of defeat. It led to exhaustion. It led to frustration. It led to discouragement. If some of you have ever tried to live life that way and you've said and you've thought that's what it means to be a Christian, it's no wonder you might be checked out right now when you hear me talk about love. Because you may be as discouraged, as defeated as I have been for many, many years in my life. And after many years of frustration of that cycle, I think God opened my eyes to this question. Where in the Bible does it say that perfection is the goal or the outcome? No one had ever raised that question. That's why I say all the time, it's about the questions. Do we have the right questions? Until you raise the question, you're not even sure, you know, what is it that we're talking about? But that question finally surfaced. Where in the Bible does it say that perfection is the goal or the outcome? And here was one of the things that that began to dawn on me that that for most of my life as as a follower of Jesus, I had been conditioned to start with Romans 3.23 for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But yet there was a book that was way before Romans. It's called Genesis. And when you begin at Genesis chapter 1, it begins with the goodness of creation. Six times God declares over his creation that it is good. And on the seventh time he says it is very good. 
When he puts humanity in the garden, he tells them to cultivate the creation that God has given as a gift. That means that if he's given them the task of cultivating the creation, it is not perfect. Now, granted, it, is not, it was not affected by the, the results of human, uh, the, the effects of human rebellion that occur in Genesis chapter 3. But that doesn't mean that it's perfect. We read that into that. When you go to the end of the Bible, the Bible talks about new creation, not perfection. That's something we've put over this view, this kind of over-spiritualized view of heaven, where the Bible talks about new creation. It's a material thing. And again, we see that it's about developing that new creation. That's going to be the task of humanity that enters into that new creation. Everything that spoils God's good creation will be gone. It will be absent in that new creation. And with regard to us, John says in 1 John 3, 2, that God's end goal for us is that we will be like Jesus. He doesn't say, you'll be perfect. He says, we will be like Jesus. See, perfection is an ideal we've inherited from the Greeks, not the Hebrews. The Hebrews don't have that view. That's very Greek. And so as I realized that, and as my categories began to shift, and I began to also appreciate, again, this theme of God's grace, and that's why the longer I live as a follower of Jesus, the more I appreciate grace-filled voices like Nadia Bowles-Weber. Nadia Bowles-Weber has a lot of ink on her body. I love it. She's a pastor of an evangelical Lutheran church called House for All Saints and Sinners. It's in Denver. She's grounded in scripture. She doesn't shy away from Jesus and the cross. Uh, what I find refreshing about her is she tells it like it is. She kind of voices things that I've thought but have not been able to say. I'm currently reading her latest book, Accidental Saints, Finding God and All the Wrong People. As I said, she calls it like she sees it, and that often includes a little bit of extra language with it as well. And in this book, she's, um, she's writing about how being a pastor is about leading people into sure death and then resurrection. And so I want to read you a piece that I thought was really good. She writes, So often in the church, being a pastor or a spiritual leader means being the example of godly living. A pastor is supposed to be the person who is really good at this Christianity stuff. The person others can look to as an example of righteousness. But as much as being the person who is the best Christian, who follows Jesus the most closely, can feel a little seductive, it's simply never been who I am or who my parishioners need me to be. I'm not running after Jesus. Jesus is running my ass down. Yeah, I am a leader, but I'm leading them onto the street to get hit by the speeding bus of confession and absolution, sins and sainthood, death and resurrection, that is, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm a leader, but only by saying, oh, screw it, I'll go first. <laughs> if Nadia Bowles-Weber is not your cup of tea and you need a little bit more refinement, Poet Mary Oliver captures the freedom that Grace brings in the opening lines of her poem, Wild Geese. She writes, You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. And she goes on from there. Some beautiful, grace-filled voices that we need, that I need, that perhaps that we need to be able to hear and to look at these descriptions in Galatians chapter 5. 
I'm suggesting to you that as we begin looking at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, we need grace-filled filters to be able to see these things. Otherwise, it will be easy to look at them like a list of chores that we might have at home, things that we have to do. And just again, a a reminder that this is the Spirit's work. This is the Spirit's work. It's a byproduct of sharing in the resurrection life of Jesus that comes to us as a gift. And the Bible tells us that when we share in the resurrection life of Jesus, that we enter into new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, there is new creation. In order to get to new creation, you die with Christ, you identify with Christ, you die with Christ, you're raised with Christ, and you're raised to new creation. And that's why Paul says that new creation has broken out in this world. It's not just something for the end of time, but it's something that has broken out in this world right now when anyone comes to Christ. And when that happens, God takes up his presence in our life through the Spirit to transform us into the likeness of Jesus. He wants us to be like Jesus. Gordon Fee, who's a New Testament scholar, puts it this way. He says, the essential nature of the fruit of the, of the fruit is the reproduction of the life of Christ in the believer. The essential nature of the fruit is the reproduction of the life of Christ in the believer. And this is why the descriptions that are used here of followers of Jesus are also ones that we would find to be descriptive of Jesus elsewhere in the Bible. This is what Jesus is like. Jesus life is marked by love and joy and peace and all the things that are in here. A couple other preliminary observations before we jump into love. Uh, This is not an exhaustive list, but it's rather a representative list. If you look at the uh, vices that are listed here in Galatians 5, 19 to 21, those vices are not exhaustive. That's not all the possible ways to turn and to rebel against God. In the same way, you uh, you could add compassion and forgiveness and humility that Paul lists in Colossians 3 to this list of of the fruit that the Spirit wants to produce. So it's not exhaustive, but rather it's representative. The second thing that is worth noting before we go into that, that, that most of these descriptions are about life in the community of Christ followers. Most of these descriptions are about life in the community of Christ followers. In other words, this is describing an other centered lifestyle. So this is not to be heard as a personal development project. Here's how you can become personally developed, self-actualized, Jesus-actualized, whatever you want to call it. That's not what it's basically describing here. It's about life within the community of Christ followers. So listen carefully here. One of the primary ways that God wants, that the Spirit wants to transform us into the likeness of Jesus is in the community of Christ followers. Do you understand what I'm getting at? That means that if you give yourself to the community, you will be shaped by the Spirit in that context. To the extent that you're living a life where you don't have time or you don't prioritize living within community of Christ, of Christ followers, then you will be lacking the context for the Spirit of God to work. That's why we're talking about triads around here and not just mentoring one-on-one where it's kind of there's this hierarchy of someone who's giving to someone else, information dump, things like that. But within a triad, when you have three to four or five people together, there's a mutuality that takes place in there where no one is really in control, but everyone has the possibility of the Spirit of God speaking to them, of working, of transforming, of shaping them. 
because there's a mutuality there. That's why we're pressing into that as a form. It's not a program, but a form whereby we can be transformed as followers of Jesus. So if you've not yet begun to press into that, this is a way the Spirit of God wants to shape us. It's in community. So this brings us to the first piece of fruit in this cluster described in Galatians 5, to 25. And Galatians 5, says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Now, remember, John says in 1 John 4, 19 that we love because he first loved us, right? That's a verse that if you've ever been in Sunday school as a kid, that was one of the, the verses they kind of pounded into you. We love because he first loved us, meaning that this is the way that God is toward us. So as we start in on this discussion of love, one of the most wonderful things to realize is that, first of all, this is the way that God is toward us. I don't think it's any accident that Paul puts love first on this list because he was a man who was steeped in the Old Testament. He was a Jewish man who was immersed in the Old Testament. And this word love captures the essence of the character of God in relationship to his people, Israel. Keep your finger here and turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, all right? Deuteronomy chapter 7, that's the fifth book in the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 7. And and in this, just a little context while you're trying to find where it is, it's page 152 in the Blue Bibles. You can cheat. I'll give you the the verse, the uh, page numbers. In Deuteronomy 7, um, God is preparing Moses to prepare the people to go into the land, to occupy the land that God has promised to them, that he promised to Abraham. And so Moses is giving them instruction. And we come on that, we're coming to breaking into that instruction in verse 6 of Deuteronomy 7. Let's look down at the words. Pay attention to the text. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, meaning you're separated unto him. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now look at verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Then turn over a page to chapter 10 where we find more of this in verse 12. Again, preparation, words of preparation. 10.12, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. And so we see that for a very pivotal, this, this was pivotal to Israel's existence, that God had chosen them, and he'd chosen them not because of something that was inherent in them, but because he loved them. He placed his love upon them and chose them. This is picked up by Israel's prophets in Hosea 3.1. Hosea is commanded to go love a woman who's going to be an adulteress, and it's a picture of, of God's faithful love towards Israel. Hosea 3.1, just listen to the words. The Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, 
though they turned to other gods and loved the sacred raisin cakes. And then the prophet Isaiah picks up on this in Isaiah 63, 9. In all their distress, he too was distressed, speaking of Israel's distress. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. So you see, this love is, was central to Paul's vision of the character of God towards his people. And so that's why when he writes to the, the Christians in Corinth, he prays for them to know the love of God, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. It's this love that we see coming out of the Old Testament. And he says that God's love has been poured out in the hearts of God's people by God's Spirit in Romans 5, 5. And for Paul, this love has been expressed most powerfully in God sending his son, Jesus, and in Jesus dying on the cross. Listen to Romans 5, 6 to 8. Again, Paul, he says, You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God... God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this orients us to what Paul and the other New Testament writers speak of or what they mean when they talk about love. Think about how the culture conditions us to hear the word love. Romantic attraction... infatuation, sexual desire. We talk about making love. Think about all the ways that we hear love as we're watching movies, as we're reading, as we're just talking to people. But Paul and the other New Testament writers reveal this about love. It engages more than the emotion. It activates the will. It activates the will. God's love wills the good of others. And this is the kind of love the Spirit wants to produce in us. It's a love that acts in the best interests of another person, even if the person might resist the action. And this is illustrated in one of the most quotable verses in the Bible that probably everybody knows if they've ever watched a football game and seen the end zone. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only unique son. The supreme act of God's love was to give his only son to humanity who in turn tried to kill him multiple times during his public ministry and finally turned to Rome to get Rome to torture and humiliate and execute him. And this is how we know what God's love is like. God's love activates the will. It's a love that looks toward the good of the other. It wills the good of the other. Mick Woodhead, who was here this Tuesday night, for those of you who were not able to be here, he described it, and I wrote it down, as offering our lives to others to raise the aspirations of others. Offering our lives to others to raise the aspirations of others. And he said, in offering our life to others, we are offering Jesus in us. That was beautiful. That was beautiful. That's what love does. 
in loving and seeking the good of others and in activating our wills to seek the good of others. We're, in, we're offering the life of Jesus to others around us. So, if this is the fruit that the Spirit wants to produce in our lives, then what is our part? Do we have a part to play? And the answer is yes. Okay, so listen carefully because I'm almost finished here. Galatians 5, verse 25, Paul says, If we live or since we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Some translations have it, let us keep in step with the Spirit. How do we keep in step with the Spirit? Well, it's by knowing what the Spirit wants to do, first of all. See, I think that's really important that we inform ourselves, here's what the Spirit wants to do. We immerse ourselves in what the Spirit wants to do. You can only stay in step with the Spirit if you know what the Spirit wants to do. It's like anything, whether you're, you're working with someone. When I used to do, I, I scrubbed in on surgery. Uh, when I was in college, and one of the things that I had to learn to do was I had to learn the surgical procedures of the room that I was scrubbing in. Was it orthopedics? Was it general surgery? Whatever. I had to learn the, I had to learn the, the, the procedure because the, the surgeon would stand there and he or she would grunt. And those grunts meant something, I learned. And it meant that I had to be anticipating what the next instrument was that went into that hand, when it went into that hand, how it went into that hand, and it had to be just like that. And if you couldn't do that, then you weren't going to be the primary. You're just going to stand there and retract like I did for a long time. But that involved keeping in step, anticipating, knowing what the surgical procedure was, staying in step with that, and anticipating that. Putting myself in a posture to know and to do and to respond. And that's essentially what this is like as well. It's making ourselves available because we know what the Spirit wants to do. How do we do that? Okay, I'm going to get very concrete. I think it begins with attentiveness. Attentiveness. Because I think that attentiveness is a posture that we can develop. That's something that's, that I've been realizing in recent months. I've really landed on this. I've begun to really spend some time thinking about attentiveness. And attentiveness involves the question, how does Jesus want to love this person and what part might I play? How does Jesus want to love this person and what part might I play? So when I'm in a conversation with someone, rather than me thinking about some kind of something I'm going to say or how I might, you know, I might disagree or I might have some kind of brilliant thing that I'm going to inform them with or what I think is brilliant. Instead, I shut that all down and instead, the question is, am I being attentive to this person? How do I be attentive? By standing there and listening to them and listening to the Spirit and asking, how might Jesus want to love this person and what part might I play in that as I'm in this conversation? It completely reorients the conversation for me. It reorients my posture. And it, it begins to open up the channels of me being attentive to the Spirit and allowing the Spirit to work through me. And you can do it too. Okay? It's, it's just the posture issue. It's not because I have some special hotline to God. It's a posture. And it's a crucial posture, I believe, for activating a love that wills the good of another person. It's a crucial posture to activating a love that wills the best for another person. So where might you start this morning? Where might you start? Well, I want to give you a very practical exercise to do. We're going to give you about two minutes to do it. 
Uh, most of you had a bulletin as you came in, and there's a place on the back, there's white space for you to either, if you do sermon notes or if you like drawing while you listen to someone, you've put your best cartoons on there already. Um, if you have a little bit of room there, take that thing out or just anywhere and want to give you a, a moment. Steve, you want to come on up with the band, and they're going to play just for a couple minutes. And I want to ask you to ask God to give you a name of someone he might want you to love this week. Okay? It could be someone in your home that maybe you've been struggling to love. It could be your neighbor. It could be someone at work who's just been really a test. It could be someone you know you're going to be meeting with this week, and you've never thought about being attentive to them and loving them in this very intentional way where you're asking, how might the Spirit of God want me to love this person? So all I'm asking you to do is to ask God to give you a name and write the name down. I'm not going to ask you to turn it in. I'm not going to ask you to say it. I'm not going to ask you to do anything with it. It's for you. But I'm asking you to at least take the exercise seriously. Okay? So let's do that for just a couple minutes. I'm going to hold up here, and then we're going to pray for those names. All right? So just take a minute. Take one of those golf pencils out and write on the back of that. Okay? So take that uh, paper that you wrote on that name, and then I'm going to pray that we might be attentive to these people this week um, as we're with them, that we might be attentive, that we might have that posture of attentiveness to love them with God's love. And I want you to do something just to kind of just to hold that name up as a way of committing that person to God, committing this time to God this week. So if you wrote a name down, just hold the paper up right now. We're going to pray together, okay? Don't be bashful. I'm not going to look, you know, I'm not going to judge you, all right? Great. I even saw an iPad there. That's pretty awesome. Okay. Let's pray together, all right, for these people. Father, these names are people that you've given to us, so we believe that already you're going to be active because you're the one that gave us the names. You're the one that's orchestrating our life. You're the one who wants to work in our lives and through us. So I ask that for each of these people who have, have received this name and are entering into this relationship this week, that your love might flow through them. They might have a heightened sense of attentiveness. They might be, know how to love them in a way that looks like your love and that they might then act on that in a way that brings life to these people. So we commit them to you. We look forward to what you're going to do in Jesus' name. Amen.